Hello and welcome to Three Season of Pod from Provision Advisors, the podcast for and about the global communications environment. Three Season of Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors, a look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Folks, vaccination rates are increasing, COVID cases are decreasing, and we've got a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. So how close is America back to being normal, or is that even possible? We're going to talk about it. David Simon, creator of The Wire, is returning to Baltimore with a new story about corruption within the police force off a book titled We Own This City. But we're going to speak with Baltimore Sun reporter Justin Fenton, who is the brainchild and source behind the original reporting of the Gun Trace Task Force. You're going to want to hear what he has to say. And we'll talk about madness. It's March, so why aren't we ready to fill out our brackets this year? Folks, please continue to check out Three Season of Pod on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. We appreciate the follow and your feedback each week. You can also find us on Twitter at ProV Advisors with an S. And also check us out on the web at www.provisionadvisors.net. All right, let's start the show. John, last week we talked about being a year into this COVID reality. And now as we push farther into a state of ensuring vaccinations are doled out as quickly as possible, uh, what I'd like to feel, uh, what I'd like to talk with you about is get your feeling uh, on the state of the nation. What's the temperature? What do you see out there? Well, I think you've you've got to look at it through several different sources. And we've talked at length before about the prevalence of um of echo chambers and how we are living in almost an information overload world. Uh, And in our clips this coming week, there's a fantastic article by Tom Lamont and The Economist, um, you know, where we, we are really starting to see information overload. We want information on the stimulus package that was very ballyhooed as it was going through the processes of getting approved. We want information about where we are on the vaccine lists. We want information about whether the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the sniper vaccine, just one shot, one, you know, one shot needed, um, you know, when will that be available? You know, you hear President Biden say that every you know able-bodied adult should have a vaccination by the end of the summer and that everyone should be back in schools and things are back to normal come September. And, and it just becomes so much, right? You know, like there is just so much information. And I'm speaking from the standpoint of one of my three children went back to school um, uh, on a hybrid basis physically in school for the first time as a high schooler. Um, and, and it's March uh, on Monday. And, and we were almost completely discombobulated. We had totally forgotten about how to get a kid ready for the bus stop because it had been so effing long since we had done that. Right. And, and that's really the balance. But the balance is this. You have you have all of this information out there, the stimulus package, the vaccines, the return to normalcy, as I like to say. And really, people are just trying to deal with the alligators closest to the boat, their own mental health, their own ability to make a meal, their own ability to get their kids out to the bus stop, their own fears about whether their kids bring COVID back to their home once they're in hybrid schools. So really, the challenge is this. And, and, and Justin Fenton, our guest on this podcast, will hopefully make note of this, that it, it brings back the importance of local news, of local information, of localized information that you need in order to 
to make your decisions and to take your next steps individually and on the tactical level. On the strategic level, I think that it's just so overwhelming and, and we're still so closely removed from the, the dysfunction of the Trump administration that I just don't know how much people are looking at the strategic level stuff and, and letting it move their needle. I think they're worried about how does the vaccine change my quality of life? Will I get to go to a beach house this summer? Will my kid have to take the SATs in order to get into college? Those are the alligators closest to the boat. And I think that that's where the opportunity exists for people who have brands on those lower tactical level issues to communicate. Chris? Yeah, John, I think you make really good points. And I think that, um, I think a lot of that is by design by the new Biden administration. I think that they have in how they have communicated, they've kind of taken the circus out of the strategic. They have allowed for more trust in the bigger picture issues by the way that they have made decisions and by the way they've communicated those decisions. So it allows people to then focus on the, the alligators closest to the boat for themselves. Um, and, uh, I think that a lot of this is a direct result of deliberate decision making and deliberate communication. Let me let me ask you both this question really quick, and it's just sort of bubbling underneath the surface. Um, do you have any uh, care or um, does it get your attention about President Biden holding a um, a solo press conference at all? Is that something of import to you? When you say solo press conference, um, let, let's just tease it out for the, the audience. You mean without the vice president? You mean, but I, I um, help me understand exactly where, what you want. Yeah, I guess. So the, the, the focus is, is just him by himself, one-on-one -on -one at the podium without anyone else. I, I think that it's remarkably unremarkable now, right? That it used to be if Trump was at the podium, if Trump were to go to the podium, that it all of a sudden became this thing that, well, we know this is gonna be a shit show. So obviously we're gonna to have to either tense up like you're about to get punched in the stomach or you sort of resign yourself to whatever de, you know, derisive thing that he's going to, uh, that he's going to say. And I think now, you know, getting President Biden out there to give individual press conferences about whatever, about, vaccines, about returning to schools, about um, any particular issue that, that affects him. And it's the same thing when Jen Psaki takes the podium um, as the White House press secretary, that you just know that it's, that it's like Chris was saying, that there isn't any drama involved. So no, it, I think that's the good thing is that, can we just go back to the good old days where, where we as like quasi-adult adults could just ignore the president of the United States, you know, like, ah, eh, you know, like, eh, it's just, it is what it is. And, and, and I think the three of us are way too participatory for that dynamic to really enter into our lives. But I, I think that's the way that it used to be, right? Like, oh, Ronald Reagan is talking about whatever, you know, voodoo economics. Um, you know, I, I just want to make sure that I can go buy my tab and members only jacket. Um, you know, like, so I think, I think that, like Chris said, it's a good thing that now Joe Biden can go out there and do a press conference all by his lonesome. And it's just not news because I, I think that's that's what they built into the calculus. It's by design. 
I think what people forget is, is um, and, and all three of us have had the opportunity to work with different White Houses. Um, those people, regardless of party, regardless of president, are masters at trying to take an event, whatever the event is, um, you know, down to the very rudimentary press conference and communicate not just in, you know, what they say, but what is presented. So when the president goes out by himself, it is either um, in, uh, I, I think it, it's a result of wanting to show that he is the chief executive. It, it may be in response to things that they're hearing that maybe he's leaning a little too much on the cabinet. I mean, there's all those, there's all that calculus that goes um, into the decisions um, of who goes to the podium and who goes with them and what, you know, what props they use. But I, I, again, I mean, I think John and I are saying the same thing. It is all, it is becoming less and less remarkable as we try to get back to adult leadership and adult communication coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Point taken. Folks, stick around. We will be back. This is Three C's with Chris, John, and Bashar. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. Welcome back. He's been a reporter with the Baltimore Sun since 2005, covering crime and police accountability for over a decade across Charm City. He was at the forefront of the reporting around the Freddie Gray case and subsequent police trial for the officers charged in the case. Now his new book, entitled for an upcoming HBO series from David Simon, We Own This City, is taking police corruption center stage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Three C's in a Pod, Justin Fenton of the Baltimore Sun. Justin, thank you for being with us this morning. Yes, thank you for having me. Justin, let, let me dial it back just, just a little bit. Um, was there a definitive point uh, which sort of clicked in your head uh, that your reporting would lead uh, to this platform? And, and to that point, what drove you then to, to move forward? I mean, I think the Gun Trace Task Force uh, corruption case is what this book is uh, focused on. And, you know, that it, it just sort of ripped the covers off of some things that have been going on in the BPD for years that hadn't been getting any attention, uh, hadn't been known. Um, and it really, for me, ultimately was a culmination of my, you know, at that time, I guess, 10 years of reporting and now 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 13 on the, the BPD and crime in the city and, and, and police corruption and things like that. So, I mean, I was able to take that story and dial back sort of like, you know, how do we get here? And things I observed, things that weren't apparent to me at the time that, that became apparent and sort of trying to help, you know, the average person who, who uh, you know, maybe isn't following these things as closely as I am, you know, sort of what what really is going on here. Um, and so, you know, you know, I never planned on writing a book. Um, I'm a newspaper reporter. I, I write, you know, <laughs> one to three articles a day sometimes. Uh, but, you know, it was sort of put to me by David Simon that, you know, this is a book and uh, and that's the approach I took to it. Just let me let me follow up on that a little bit. There is a there's a bit of a uniqueness uh, within Baltimore. And, you, you know, you mentioned David Simon and his uh, creation of The Wire. So moving into this uh, you know, using your book and we own this city to move uh, to an HBO series. Does it, I don't know, does, 
how, how does that feel uh, in terms of being into this, being involved, uh, ingrained in now this this retelling of what's happening in Baltimore on the screen? You know, is is that something that you feel um, you know is essentially just proud to be a part of? I mean, I'm extremely proud to be a part of it. It's a real blessing, really, um, you know, for, again, my, my, my first book to be this uh, subject matter for, for these great storytellers. Uh, you know, I, at the same time, you know, Baltimore has been trying to <laughs> kind of fight the image of the wire for years. There's a real love-hate relationship with it, I think, here, where, some, you know, people say, you know, it, it depicts the city a certain way. You know, what, what I always say to that is that, you know, th- what, it, what it depicts is, re- is, is true to the parts that it depicts there's obviously our our beautiful inner harbor and wonderful neighborhoods but that's a part of the city that people actually would rather not talk about and it, and it, it's it forces us to talk about it and i think one of the things you know that this really underscores to me is how th- how a lot of things haven't changed and in some ways we may have backslid and so you know i think that while you know there's plenty of opportunities to tell other stories about baltimore and 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 other storytellers to tell them this is important I, again again this this police corruption um and this is ser- this is really serious corruption this is not you know, for years, I would cover the arrest of an officer and it would it, it would be really easy for officials to say, you know, as a bad apple, you know, there was one guy doing something wrong and we caught him and that doesn't represent our values. And and, and we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. This is an entire squad of officers. And it and one of the phrases the prosecutors used was that it metastasized as they continued to follow it. The, 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 the spider webs out that ultimately there's been 15 officers charged and stuff that was going on for years. And I, and, and I think that that, you know, for, for people who might think that, you know, this stuff uh, it, it's isolated incidents, it's, it's bad actors. You know, this case showed um, that it's more than that. At the, at the same time, it's not an indictment of the entire force. Um, it's a failure of leadership for sure. But I think my book tries to show, you know, people who are either caught in the crosshairs or, or trying to root it out or who didn't, know what was going on and how all that go- comes together to sort of create the environment that we had. So that's my best answer to that question. So Justin, I'll jump in here. I I have obviously followed you um, since you graduated from the University of Maryland and you were an introduction, you know, kind of entry level reporter. And you really came on the scene as medium like Twitter and Facebook and other social media or digital media became more mainstream. And and what what I followed and observed was that you became so very popular. I mean, here, you know, here you are, your Twitter account has almost 86,000 followers. So you, you have, you have a status. Um, And, and I, I guess I'm asking how much did social media really help you do your job? Because if I can characterize how you do your job and you can correct me if you want in your answer, it's that you really ingrained yourself in the beat and, and got to know people and were tweeting things, you know, from the police, you know, tape line and, 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 and being right there in the thick of the action and then tweeting about it and people ate it up. How much did the advent of Twitter really help you do your job? And how does it continue to help you do your job um, in holding people accountable, notably the gun task force? Yeah, I, I, I um, Twitter's been a great tool for me. I, um, I really like being able to 
to work in different mediums like that. I, you know, when, when I first started at, at the paper, you know, you would work all day on an article and you turn it in at the end of the day and it would run in the next day's newspaper. Um, and it, even, even, I mean, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not going back to like the seventies or something. I'm talking about the mid two thousands that, that, that was yeah. the way we operated. You know, it was, it was a thing where you, you, you filed stuff and it appeared the next day. And that, that obviously changed over time, but Twitter allowed me to like really report things in real time and to, and to use photos and to use, you know, my own voice, um, to, to develop things and also to introduce my, myself a little bit. I mean, I, I do have a, uh, what can be a very, um, grim beat and, you know, um, I, I don't, I, you know, so I try to, you know, in, in, in moments where I, I, I can offer some levity that, that that's not related to the beat. I want to be very careful about that. I, I never try to be flip about the things that I'm covering. Um, but you know, um, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's also been great for, for source building. I think that by being ever present, which is what I try to do, people respect that. It, you know, I can't tell you how many times people would say, you know, I, I love your Twitter and, I, and I'm not even sure whether they're reading the articles, uh, but, but, you know, direct messages that I get from people offering tips and things like that. Uh, it's, 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 it's a huge tool. And, and a lot of the, the follower spikes were based around major incidents. You know, I would be covering something huge that was happening and I would get retweeted or, or my tweets would get put on TV or something. And one, one incident that I recall early on was a barricade situation or what was thought to be a barricade situation at Johns Hopkins hospital. And I saw a huge surge there. So a lot of that's based on like, like major incidents, but you know, luckily I think I've retained some of those folks and um, yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely been um, uh, now I, I will say I, I, I've also sort of been like social media out. Like I can't, like I just, all these different platforms has become a little bit too much to manage. And I've sort of focused only on Twitter with the occasional uh, Instagram posts, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, huge tool in what I do. So do you think you would have landed where you are today without social media sort of force multiplying for your reporting? Like if this were uh, 2005 um, and not 2021, um, do you think do you think you would have had the impact in exposing the gun trace task force that you did? Um, or was social media a, a, like kind of a perfect complement to your reporting? Yeah, I, I see it more as a, as a compliment in terms of the, the, the reporting I've been able to do. I mean, it, at the end of the day, the reporting is is done offline. You know, it's not. Uh, you know, it's, it's getting the news out where social media helps, and and maybe the occasional tip. Um, but I think the writing and the reporting, you know, is a is a separate thing. And social media is like an added. It's like um sort of like a like a bonus, like 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 an appendix or something that I can add to the to the. You know, it was, it was fun to live tweet during the trial, you know, there were some folks who were covering it who said, you know, why isn't this a bigger story outside of Baltimore? Because it, 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 it kind of wasn't. <laughs> um, and, no, you know, it wasn't. <laughs> through, 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 through the live tweeting, I think I was able to call some attention to it. But uh, a quick last follow up from me before I kick it over to, to Chris Cervello for a question. A lot of what we do, Bashan, Chris and I, you know, involves working with reporters every single day. And, and we and we give trainings to our clients about building relationships with reporters and generating buy-in with reporters and with your organization. Um, how much has relationship building, you know, as you've done this, you know, and you started out on the ground level and now you're working with HBO on a series, you know, it, it, what advice would you give to introductory level reporters, particularly people who are tracking the Alden Capital 
uh, scenario with the Tribune and with the Sun and the Sun being bought by the by the nonprofit and essentially needing that in order to not get carved up by this heartless hedge fund. How do you how do you talk to people who are maybe writing for the Diamondback at the University of Maryland and thinking about a career in journalism? What advice do you give them about building relationships and building your beat and building this following where a lot of reporters are just looking to quickly file and not necessarily confirm with sources and secondary sources and tertiary sources? What do you what do you what what advice would you give? Well, I mean, from a comms perspective, and, and I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but I feel like it's a it's a much more of a harder job these days to convince uh, PR folks at different agencies that we cover that that we still are are here that, that we are still um, we we are still want to tell varied stories. Um, I've seen a huge rise in sort of corporate communications where they the each agency is really trying to own its own brand and tell its own stories, and they treat us like an afterthought. And because they're so good at telling their own stories, positive stories, you know, we tend to focus on the negative because it's like, okay, the positive stuff is already getting done. They've got that on their own Facebook page. They've got that on their own Twitter. What what stories are not being told? Because we have fewer resources. We have much fewer reporters than we used to. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to become just the, you know, the grim reaper that comes around only to report on negative stuff. We we want to tell those good stories. And it's so difficult to break through that wall and say, you know, I want to sit down with the officer who did something heroic or did an amazing job with a case. That, that's actually like the most difficult thing these days to me. And so, I, you know, I, to, to, to maybe be more precise to your question is like, reporters have to try to be Working with sources, working with with, um, you know, uh, uh, spokespeople is like that's something they can't teach you in journalism school. They don't teach you how to maintain relationships, how to after uh, you get into a shouting match with a, with, a, with a spokesperson who doesn't like your last story that you wrote, how you got to try to, you know, you know make up with them and move forward and keep keep reporting. Um, and and, and with, with, without doing that sort of access journalism like ass kissing either like you still need to you know you still need to do your job and, and be objective and tell the stories that need to be told it's just like it's a huge it's a huge balancing act these days um and it's it's uh it, ta- it, it takes a lot of effort so let, let's build on that um that that idea of relationship building and storytelling what were the biggest differences in telling stories um, on a on a daily beat, and what did you have? To, what were things that were the same in, in how you put together stories um, you know, in the two medium? The biggest difference for this was that I was able to really press on some things that maybe in my daily reporting I would have had to put to the side. You know, there were some records I was trying to get, for example, and I just know that if I was still at the paper, you know, I took six months off to write this book, to to, to really focus on writing the book. It wasn't a six month effort, but that was the concentrated part of it. And there was requests I had that I I just know in my daily reporting, I would have forgotten about it. It would have been put by the wayside um, and and I would have regretted it. And I was really able to bear down on, on folks and make sure that I really drilled down to the to as far down as I could. Um, but again, you know, other than that, you know, it's just, it's the same kind of asking questions, sort of taking one, uh, you know, following one path and leading to another and, and trying to get as many people to talk as possible, because that's ultimately, I wanted to get a lot of perspectives. I, this, this is not a, this, I, I, this book, I, I think, I hope leaves people 
confused, <laughs> leaves them, you know, seeing that things are complicated. Um, I don't have all the answers, but but I want to paint a, a, a complex picture of, of how these things are not, you know, it's, it, it's not, it's not, it's not as easy as, you know, people should have known. I, that, that's one takeaway. Um, but but it, 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 I also wanted to explain how it was not known and, and how, how difficult it was to get at the truth here. Follow up question and kind of switching gears just a touch. You and your book are now the story. Um, how hard is making that adjustment? Um, you, you know, you're now on the <laughs> other side. Uh, have, have you found that um, an easy adjustment? I mean, what could you share about making that? Yeah, I, I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, that's not, I, I, I prefer to report things. And, I, you know, there's a, there's a big debate in journalism about objectivity. And, and is, it, is it a false concept? You know, is it, can anyone really be objective? Is there, you know, or are, are, you, are you both sizing things just for the hell of it? And, and I would say that I, I do really strive to be an objective reporter in the sense that I have an open mind. I think often there are two sides to every story. And again, that, that's not advocating for both sides and things just for the, for the hell of it. Um, but, you know, th- you know, there's a saying that I often I often go back to that. I see this this tweet goes viral every now and then or, or this message goes viral every now and then. And it says, you know, it's not your job as a journalist to look out the window and uh, it's it, it's not your job to to interview two people about whether it's raining outside. It's your job to stick your head out the window and find out. And with my reporting, I feel like I got a brick wall. <laughs> There's no window to stick my head out of. I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know what the truth is. And the best I can do is talk to as many people as I can. So so when it comes to talking about my work, it's it's often like. You know, sometimes I just want to point to it and say, well, you know, read it, for, read it for yourself, and 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 what you know, make up your own mind. But but so that's a bit of adjustment. But but over the years, I've certainly been doing you know various you know radio interviews and and talks and panel discussions. So it's not like a foreign concept. But I I prefer to let the work speak for itself. Justin, you you've made some really great points. Um, you know, stuff that that we talk about with our clients that we talk about here uh, on the podcast, specifically when you talk about the relationship portion uh, of uh, dealing with a reporter and in between, you know, whether it's a you're a PR professional, communications professional, and uh, establishing that relationship with that reporter doing their job. Uh, so so thank you one for that. Um, you know, here we are, you know, you've, the book is out. We own this city. Uh, and obviously there's the there's the HBO piece as well. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that there can be uh, a story can sometimes get lost or misconstrued in, in terms of what's written in the book versus what's then adapted for television. Uh, I'll get you out of here with this. What is it that you would prefer people? You know, obviously we want them to go out and read your book um, and, and check it out. Uh, for what you have to say, what do you want people both inside Baltimore and, uh, you know, outside of Baltimore uh, to know about what's going on uh, in this book and then what we can expect forward, uh, moving forward uh, out of out of Baltimore? Yeah, again, it's, uh, you know, I, I take sort of a 15 year view on, on how we got to this point, you know, uh, from the crime strategies that were implemented in the in the mid 2000s to try to bring down the crime rate and, and some of the, uh, you know, misconduct that was occurring then, but maybe wasn't being taken very seriously up to sort of how the ground shifted uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of Freddie Gray and even and how this corruption the way the department was set up such that even post Freddie Gray, even amid a period where we were supposed to be seeing, um, you know, real change in the agency and being told that every day, 
that this extreme corruption was nonetheless occurring. There's also a lot of new information about the death of Sean Souter. He was a homicide detective who was shot and killed uh, while on duty in 2017, and it dovetails into this case. But but as, you know, just to repeat something I said earlier, I really there's a lot of different perspectives here. This is not a book with an agenda. You know, there's I talked to you know drug dealers who were investigated by the police. I talked to the FBI agents and task force members who investigated these corrupt officers. I talked to the corrupt officers themselves. One of the members of the task force spoke to me extensively and, and people who investigated, you know, and, and people who were caught in the, in the, in, in the crossfire, so to speak, who were working amid these officers and either saw glimpses of these things or, or, or claim not to have known anything at all. So I, I just want, I think that it, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm told it's a breezy read. Uh, it's a page turner, even though I, I, I thought I was packing in a lot of information. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that people are able to get through it and to find it readable, considering I think there's, it covers a lot of ground and a lot of perspectives. And uh, yeah, the, 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 as far as the show, I'm, I'm on board as a consultant. I'm there to try to make sure it, it stays close to the real story. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the storyline is up for the the uh writers and, and and producers but i'm uh, i'm in good hands with the people who uh did the wire and the deuce and treme and other shows like that so i'm i would say so <laughs> the book is we own this city in stores and available on amazon please go check it out we want to thank you justin fenton for being with us today we appreciate your time all right thank you very much guys We'll take a break. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. We're back. And as usual, it's time to look out on the horizon. John, I'm going to go to you first. What do you see here now that we are almost approaching the midway point of March? Well, March either means March Madness uh, or it means um, the oncoming baseball season. And uh, on ESPN, there's a great article, you know, which Major League Baseball teams will have fans in the stands, a ballpark by ballpark guide to opening day and beyond. And, and this is America's pastime and people love sports and Chicago announced that they're going to allow 20% capacity uh, into their stadiums on opening day. And this is contrasted by a story same day where two members of the Cleveland Indians, and I'm going to get to that here in a second, were, were you know, wrist smacked for breaking virus protocols. So you've got this feeling that, that, a normal baseball season might return, but at the same time, you've got guys uh, getting getting tossed or getting um, uh, disciplined for breaking COVID protocol. So for me, I'm looking at the upcoming baseball season from the standpoint of that, whether fans will be there and how it affects local economies and how local um municipalities and local governments like Baltimore, for example, are going to communicate to local businesses like pickles or like sliders. And, and Chris, I'll shed a tear on April 8th as, as Orioles opening day happens and, and you and I aren't, aren't able to enjoy that in person, or maybe will we? Um, it, it's, it's a critical time for a lot of businesses that lost the entire baseball season. How will you communicate to them 
what help exists. You know, President Biden and Congress did their part with their COVID relief bill um, here in the last couple of days. What will you do locally? Um, how will you act locally in order to support small businesses that usually depend on a baseball season? Number two, I mentioned the Cleveland Indians. You mentioned, or they said at the end of the past baseball season that they were changing their name. Here we are, we're less than three weeks away from opening day and they haven't renamed themselves. Um, I wonder how that's gonna go. You know, I've criticized the Washington football team for the way that they did that. Cleveland has only a finite amount of time left to change their name. You want that lead up you know, where people during spring training here can buy all of your new gear and it can get kind of inculcated with your audience. I just get this feeling and maybe COVID is, you know, just more of a priority for people, but I just get this feeling like, eh, the name change doesn't really matter. I think it matters. Um, you have a great opportunity here to stand out from the shit show that the Washington football team performed. You're going to have to do this soon because you need to think about, um, gear, merchandising, and the lead up to the baseball season so that the new name is there. Hopefully the new name is cool. Hopefully the new hats are cool, but you need to do it soon. Certainly. Chris, how about you? What, what I'm keeping an eye on the horizon is the significance of um, vaccinations and what you will be able to do uh, moving forward, kind of piggybacking on what uh, John said. So the CDC put out that um, they believe that people that are vaccinated can gather together without the kind of traditional social distancing and without wearing a mask. And so how will how will that announcement be interpreted? And will your vaccination passport or, you know, the card that you're given, will that be the key as more and more uh, people are vaccinated? Will that be the key to unlocking some of these um, gates as we move towards whatever the new normal is? And how will we communicate that in a way that doesn't make people feel like they're haves and have nots? Um, as that vaccination process moves forward, as um, new protocols begin to take effect, the Biden administration and the CDC and local mun municipalities are going to be really challenged um, to communicate the science behind those decisions and to make people that are vaccinated um, understand what they can and cannot do and to not disenfranchise or um, turn off those that have yet to be vaccinated so that we kind of move towards this together. It is going to be a huge challenge um, to, uh, to be able to communicate successfully through this uh, over the next couple weeks and months. You both bring up, as always, some very, very critical points. Um, Chris, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of take what you're saying right here about that you, you use the word disenfranchise and how that can uh, that can drive people to sort of make decisions uh, right, wrong or indifferent. And so what what has my attention right now, um, you know, as people talk about the the getting vaccinated and those CDC guidelines uh, and to John's point of the upcoming, you know, the ceremonial opening day um, traditions uh, surrounding baseball. 
And I'll point to to even March Madness. Uh, I was listening to an interview the other day with Duke great uh, and commentator Jay Billis, where he was talking about the communal nature uh, of college basketball. And then and then it's not just college basketball, right? It's the, the communal nature of, of fans gathering for for opening day, for, you know, filling out your brackets and, the, you know, the joy and the revelry which take, takes place around that every year. Uh, and here we have gotten to this point, uh, whether globally or you know, just specifically in the United States, where uh, there is that lack of uh, joy or the lack of desire to even do those things that we usually do. However, I point to the warmer weather that specifically uh, is hitting the Northeastern region of the United States. Um, you know, it's been warmer for maybe a little bit longer in some other parts. Um, of the United States. I'm not looking at anyone uh, specifically on this podcast who's enjoying that. But but just the, the onset of this, the next few days and, and, and weeks as we move towards uh, daylight savings time and, and, you know, springing forward, getting more sunlight during the day. What choices are people going to make you know, those people who are not vaccinated and even those who are fully vaccinated, you know, how is the warmer weather? How is the the um, the lack of a, a true March madness or a true opening day going to drive their attitudes and movement, um, you know, as, as spring falls upon us? Uh, and so that is something that is going to definitely have my attention as someone who has not been vaccinated and who's, you know, some of my family members are fully vaccinated and other family members have not. So we still have to be cautious. We still have to be aware uh, of this virus uh, that is still here, that is still present, uh, despite some some good numbers on vaccinations uh, and COVID cases. So that's what's on my horizon. And I thank you, gentlemen, for uh, a fruitful discussion today. Uh, on that point. Folks, that's our show for today. We appreciate you joining us for this conversation as always. Uh, remember to find and subscribe to Three C's in a Pod on all of your podcast platforms. And if you're looking for more information as your business or organization navigates the communication environment, feel free to reach out to us at provisionadvisors.net. And you can also sign up to receive our weekly update delivered straight to your inbox each and every Sunday morning. In the meantime, folks, we ask that you please be safe, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.